Happy Lord's Day, First Family Church. On Friday morning, President Donald Trump made an important announcement to the nation. And what appears to be a departure from how many of the state governors have been handling places of worship during the time of the quarantine, President Trump declared church to be essential to the function of our society. And he emphasized that the First Amendment rights of our Constitution guarantee the free expression of religious belief. He welcomed churches across the nation to begin assembling again starting today and promised to challenge any state authorities that denied their people that right. You might be wondering, then why do you still have that mangy beard and why are we not worshiping in our church building like we are used to? And so I wanted to take a minute before we begin the sermon to explain our thought process on this. Hopefully you've been praying for us. Uh, last week we met together as elders for our monthly elders meeting and we begin to plot a course to reopen church. Uh, we have gotten to the point as leaders of the church where we feel that the command to honor the instruction of the government was conflicting with our responsibility to honor the instruction of the Lord God and the way that He commands us to worship Him. We want to honor the government, but that is secondary to two greater concerns, honoring our King, the Lord Jesus, and protecting the safety of our congregation. We felt like drive-in service really wasn't an option, although that became available to churches beginning last week. The number of hoops that you have to jump through in order to do that in a legal way was very restrictive, and we felt that it was going to hinder the way we worship our God. We didn't want to feel like we had one hand tied behind our back for, for the entirety of the service, so we decided that was not a good fit for us. Now, Governor Newsom is supposed to respond to the executive order that Trump put out He's supposed to do that on Monday, and we will listen to his words and consider what he has to say. But barring any unforeseen circumstances, we're going to be moving forward with our own plan, uh, which is what we gathered to discuss and uh, confirm this past week. If you are a member of the church, you'll be receiving a video from us giving you some detailed instructions on when we plan to meet and how we plan to meet. It will not look exactly like church has looked in the past. We are committed to gathering in as safe a manner as we can in order to minimize the risk to our congregation. And so that means that we're going to have to make some concessions and personal sacrifices in order to keep one another safe. Um, we're, we're praying that we'll be willing to do that with an open heart, with a gracious heart, with a good attitude. I know that I don't necessarily want to worship the Lord wearing a face mask, but if that's going to be helpful to keeping somebody else from catching germs that might give them this virus, then we're willing to make a concession like that in order to be able to worship God the way that He has called us to worship Him. So we're going to be asking our people to wear face masks. We're going to be socially distancing our congregation. We will have hand-washing stations. Um, our service might be a little bit shorter than normal. Uh, we're going to forgo our welcome time. We're going to ask people not to hug and embrace and shake hands. We're going to take those kind of steps that we've been thinking through and planning for uh, for several weeks now, that our people might feel comfortable and safe and confident that they can come and worship the Lord their God without putting themselves at too great of a risk at contracting uh, this COVID disease. So keep an eye out for an update from us early next week with a roadmap for going forward. And rejoice, church, because there appears to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we are near to gathering together again as we have desired to do so. Now, the trial is not necessarily over yet. We are still in a season of testing. We still need to be diligent about taking precautions against the unnecessary spread of the virus. 
There are still huge economic implications to the way that we've dealt with this that need to be worked through and navigated. But one of the most difficult elements of this quarantine process is about to be removed. We're about to begin to worship together again. So praise the Lord for the good news that we received this week. Today we're going to begin a new series. But in some ways it springs from our study in Ecclesiastes that we just finished up. So if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Do you ever look at something in your life that you see and that you use on a daily basis and think to yourself, this is a useful tool, this is a worthwhile addition to my life, but I think it could be improved upon. I think I can actually make this thing better. That's the attitude that got us the remote control which is such a handy device that we don't have to get up to change the channels anymore on our TVs. And that has saved us countless thousands of steps during this quarantine, I'm sure. It's the thinking that resulted in an automatic ice dispenser finding its way into your freezer. Yes, a freezer is a, a wonderful invention. It makes your food last longer. But man, how convenient it is to be able to just shove your cup into the door of your refrigerator and have ice cubes fall out. That's going to come in extremely handy during those hot summer months that are quickly approaching. We love to tinker with things. We love innovation. We love to improve. But sometimes in an effort to improve on things, we make so many changes that the thing we're trying to improve upon ceases to be the thing that it started out to be. Most all of you have smartphones by now. It's a little humbling to think that my six kids don't remember a world without smartphones. But I do. Do you remember the, the dawn of the smartphone, a far-off time when Nokia still roamed the earth and blackberries weren't just a fancy addition to your fruit salad? The cell phone had established itself as a must-have item, but people were eager to approve upon the design, adding such useful features as a calendar, a calculator, note-taking features, and even a camera. All these additional technologies promise to make the cell phone even better. Now here's the irony. Smartphones originally brought so much innovation, but were often lousy at being phones. They often got poor reception. They dropped calls. The batteries would wear out extremely quickly because of all the extra technology included in the device. They were often awkward ergonomics where the phone was designed secondly as a phone and first to pack all that technology in. So sometimes you had to move your phone just to be heard to talk in your mouthpiece and then move it back to hear what the people were saying to you. The early smartphones did a lot. But if it stops being what it was supposed to be in the first place, then we've sort of missed the point, haven't we? Now, tech companies eventually figured this all out. But I mention it because we see a similar problem through the generations when it comes to the gospel. In the spirit of innovation, people will often look at the gospel as if it's something that can be improved upon. We want to share God's plan of salvation with the lost. We want to bless the world with this hope that we have received. But the world is not often interested in what we have to share or to preach. And so inevitably, someone starts thinking, if we only make a few adjustments, if we can just cut that part out, or, or if we can shift emphasis a little bit this way, then maybe people would accept the gospel more readily. But there is a huge problem with that. The gospel is God's means of salvation. 
It's not ours. And it's not up for reinvention or redefinition. We can make a better cell phone. We can improve on a lot of things in our lives. But there is no room for improvement when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're beginning a new mini-series this morning that will take a look at a group of doctrines that has become known as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. They're listed there in your notes. Scripture alone is in the Latin, sola scriptura. Grace alone, sola gratia. Faith alone, sola fide. Christ alone, solus Christus. And to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. Now these five statements are Latin in origin. The word sola means only or alone. And each of these statements sought to return the church to its theological foundations. Let's begin by getting our historical bearings. When the Protestant Reformation really began to gain steam about 500 years ago, the dominant Christian entity in the world was the Roman Catholic Church. And they had been growing in influence for nearly a thousand years at the point of the Reformation. Many in the church were becoming increasingly concerned that the doctrines and the practices of the church were going beyond what Scripture had instructed the church to be and to do. Here are some of the innovations that threatened the integrity of church doctrine, particularly the gospel itself. The Roman Catholic Church taught that authority in the church rests equally in the Word of God and in the church itself, namely in the traditions of the church and the authority of leadership that was granted to the Pope. The Word was only really available to the people in the Latin language. Latin was an academic language. It was primarily used in the university. It was not spoken frequently by the people who were, um, were the common people of the day. So their ignorance to the truth began to really grow as they could not read the Bible for themselves. All they could do was trust their priests to relay the truth of the word to their ears. The grace of Jesus was considered necessary for salvation under Roman Catholic doctrine, but would prove ineffective if it were not combined with the religious works on the part of the individual. The fruit of faithful obedience was seen to contribute to salvation rather than springing from salvation. This idea that we must do good deeds in order to merit salvation led to the exploitation of the people. Offerings of money to the church were taught as an acceptable way to help a deceased loved one become eligible for heaven and to spring from another invention, the idea of purgatory, sort of a middle ground for people who didn't quite deserve hell, but didn't yet deserve heaven either. This practice of, of giving money to the church in order to free a relative from purgatory became known as the selling of indulgences. And great cathedrals were financed on the fears of those who were taught that grace might not be quite enough. Jesus was no longer proclaimed as the one mediator between God and man. According to the Roman Catholic doctrine, there is hope in Jesus, but there is also hope in the saints. There is also merit in praying to Mary, God's or Jesus' mother. And the Pope 
whose words could at times be considered to carry the, the very same authority as God himself, was also another person that people looked to as a mediator and as, as, as their hope. And so the Reformation initially started as a movement within the Catholic Church as faithful people began to think, these aren't the things that the Word teaches us to hold to. There are discrepancies between the doctrine that we are being taught and the truth that the Scripture proclaims. From within the church, an effort began to be made to strip away the false innovations that had corrupted the gospel and to bring the church back to a holy dependence upon the Lord and His Word. But those who held power in the church acted quickly to stop this reformation. And those who protested were either excommunicated or in many circumstances simply put to death. Thus the Protestant Reformation resulted in many groups protesting against the injustice and the inaccuracy of Roman Catholic doctrine and building their own denominations in favor of a Christianity that was more true to the commands of the Bible. Now these issues that were called forward in the time of the Reformation are still problematic in the Roman Catholic Church today. While these errors might not be as obvious as they were in those times, the Mass is conducted in common languages today, for example, and so there is more of the Word being disseminated to the people. The doctrine that sparked the Reformation has not been revoked. The Council of Trent, which occurred over several years from 1545 to 1563, affirmed many of these errors. It was considered by many Roman Catholics as a counter-reformation, a way to answer for the questions that were being brought about by these reformers. And during those theological debates and discussions, they came to some severe conclusions. They declared that anyone holds to justification by faith alone was anathema. Anathema is the Latin word for unsaved expelled, not a part of God's salvation. The Apocrypha, which is a, a questionable group of ancient texts that happened between the time of the end of the Minor Prophets and the beginning of the Gospels, were affirmed by the Roman Catholic Church as being part of the canon of Scripture. So not only were doctrines being added, but holy texts were being declared that were not declared for hundreds of years before that point. Holy Scripture and the traditions of the church were affirmed as equally special revelations of the Lord God. So tradition was affirmed to have the same authority as the Word itself. And the idea of purgatory, which is found nowhere in the Bible, was upheld during those councils. The declaration and anathemas of the Council of Trent have never been revoked by the Roman Catholic Church to this day. In fact, the decrees of the Council of Trent are confirmed by both the Second Vatican Council, which was held in 1962 to 1965, and the official catechism of the Catholic Church, which was published in 1992. So the Protestant Reformation occurred because there needed to be a refining. What had been added to the gospel by tradition and innovation needed to be taken away. The people needed to get back to the core of what God had communicated to them to believe in the words of Scripture. And I can't just single out the Roman Catholic faith here because many similar mistakes are being made in the Protestant ch 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 um, churches around the world today. 
Innovators are still trying to make the gospel into something that it is not. This is not a Catholic problem. This is a human problem. We see people today calling for the gospel to become a tool by which social justice can be brought about in, in, the, in the society that we live in. Some people see the gospel as simply a solution to our discomfort and a means to prosperity. The gospel has been hijacked as, as a secret formula to make people rich. And that is not what the gospel was given to us for. The gospel is seen by others as just one path of many on the way to enlightenment and self-improvement. And so the Reformation sought to distill the church back down to what it must be in order to remain the church. And in many ways, the church needs Reformation still today. The Reformation must remain on our hearts and minds so that Christians can be constantly trying to prevent others from reinventing God's plan of salvation. Now, I want us all to notice something important about the five sola statements. The five solas represent the core element of one greater body of doctrine, the doctrine of salvation. Now, the doctrine of salvation is often called soteriology. That's a term that's worth getting to know. Basically, just means the study of, the understanding of how God saves his people. And what that means to you and to me is that the stakes will be quite high for what we're going to be learning about and taking to heart over the next five weeks through this series in the five solas. Human beings are sinners. Humans are born into grave danger. We are enemies to the living God, not because he has made us his enemies. In fact, God was very gracious in making us in his image. He made us to honor him and to worship him, to have right fellowship with him. So why are we his enemies? Men are his enemies because the first man chose to be so. Adam and Eve in the garden were given honor, were given were given authority. They were given a special opportunity to interact regularly with the Lord God. But they were also called into a covenant relationship that had limits and commands. It was commanded of them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And though that one rule stood in the way of their good interaction with God, that was the one rule that they chose to break. Human beings ever since have been cursed with a heart that desires to rebel against the living God. One of the false innovations that regularly threatens the integrity of the gospel is the redefinition of what it means to be saved. We are often told that salvation means God wants to come into your life and prevent you from being a victim. He wants to come into your life and, and take away all the things that would keep you from your happiness. But friends, what we really need saved from is the sinful rebellion that plays out against us and God on a regular basis. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Who did Jesus come to save? He came to save those who had broken the laws of God, good and perfect laws. Laws that must be upheld. Laws that God must punish people for breaking. And so salvation is first and foremost to undo the sin that we have committed against God. Look at John 3.36. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God is a perfect and a faithful judge. And so when wickedness occurs in his creation, it is his responsibility to punish that wickedness, to make right what free agents like us have made wrong. We have committed sin against God. And if we do not follow his means for salvation, then the wrath of God rests upon our shoulders. We don't need to be so concerned about equity. We don't need to be so concerned about luxury. We don't need to be so concerned about comfort and happiness. We need to be concerned about the fact that our rebellion against God's law have made us worthy of his wrath and objects of his judgment. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our sins don't just lose us optional blessings. They make us guilty of God's eternal fire of punishment. God is angered by our sin because sin represents the corruption of God's plan for mankind. And so if we want to get away from this sin, if we want to be saved from it, we have to understand that man's sin earns God's wrath, that man cannot himself undo his sin. He can't erase the problem that he has brought upon himself. We have to understand that God chooses in mercy to save helpless men and women like us and that only his means for salvation can bring about this redemption. When human beings tinker with the core elements that are necessary to bring a man to salvation, we risk turning our eyes away from the very means by which God has chosen to spare his people from his righteous wrath. The five solas, therefore, do not just define what a Protestant is. This isn't just a matter of, well, this doctrine works for us, but it might not work for you. No, these five solas are integral to the one and only way that a man must be saved. I might take note that the Reformers did not want to abandon the Roman Catholic Church when these problems and errors began to become clear to them. They did everything that they could to heal the church from within, through the proper channels. But as they struggled to reform, it became clear that these essential truths were not being acknowledged in the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. So they had to make a choice. If they stayed with the Roman Catholic Church, they were essentially turning their back on salvation because the Roman Catholic Church had innovated and changed the gospel to the point where it was no longer God's means for salvation. These five solas will, of course, impact other doctrines that we hold to, but they are primarily the framework by which God saves man. Without this, you have abandoned God's means for redemption. So we're dealing with something much more than just denominational clarification here. We're dealing with essential truth. And so this morning we return our attention to a familiar place, if you've got your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 12, we're going to read again a verse that we just studied recently, and we're going to look at its implications on how we see God's command to his people. One of the final warnings 
that we saw as we studied through the book touches on the very idea of trusting that what God has given to you is enough and that there is no need to add to it or to improve upon it. And so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to read again 11 and 12 this morning. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here in Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon, the preacher, affirms that God's works are trustworthy, that they are firm. And he warns that going beyond them puts us in danger. How important for Solomon to say that in a book like Ecclesiastes. At the time this book was written, God had made Israel into a special covenant people for his own glory. He had entered into a binding relationship with them, whereby they became his people and he committed himself to being their God. As benefits of this covenant relationship, God promised to be over them, to care for them, to help them flourish, to protect them from their enemies. And Solomon, of course, is king over Israel at its apex. They are at the pinnacle of their glory. They are in many ways realizing and enjoying the benefits and blessings of this covenant relationship. Israel was able to experience the blessing of being near to him. Hosea 1.10 said, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said of them, Children of the living God. So through covenant promises that were initiated by God himself, this group of human beings, sinful human beings, were brought near to God so that he might make them holy. Secondly, they get to hear from God through the prophets. 2 Kings 17, 13 says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the laws that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So God had a special relationship by which he revealed his perfect truth to the people in a way that they could understand, in a way that they could study it and reference it and conform their lives to it. Thirdly, he offers them protection and he assures them that Abraham and Sarah's offspring will indeed multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 12.2 says, And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Fourthly, God prepares for them a place of their own where they might dwell and flourish and worship Him freely. Genesis 12, 6 through 7 describes this place of promise. It says, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Sheshem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And fifthly, while the nation of Israel is at that time the primary benefactors of that covenant, they are even promised that through God's blessings to them, every nation of the world will be blessed. That this special people had been brought 
near to God through God's will, through them, other people of other nations would also be able to approach the throne of God and have a right relationship with him. Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This relationship exists within a specific framework. What you, co- you can call the terms of a covenant. God will provide for Israel. Israel will trust and obey their God. God being perfect has never failed to do just what he said that he would do for his people. But Israel, being comprised of sinful man, again and again and again has fallen short of those covenantal frameworks. And in falling short, they have often missed out on the blessings of walking with the Lord in close fellowship. And so it is no wonder that Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, addresses the fact that the people are in many ways dissatisfied. They still yearn for meaning and fulfillment. It is no wonder that they look for happiness and fulfillment in the wrong places because they often turn their eyes away from the covenant blessings that should be their hope and their joy and their peace. The greatest promise of the covenant was not land. It was not protection from enemies. It was not offspring. The greatest promise of the covenant was to be brought near to God and to have fellowship with Him. Without that, nothing else will satisfy. And that is essentially what Solomon proves through the book of Ecclesiastes. In this book, Solomon has taken a peek outside of the framework that God has built for His people through covenant. He goes beyond what is written. He examines the ways of the world. He tries to see for himself if the ways of man, the ways that seem right in the eyes of men, will lead to instruction and enlightenment and greater fulfillment. And his conclusion after all of this seeking is that there is really no comparison. The ways that seem right to man proved to be nothing more than vanity. They were empty promises that were never realized, that could not be held. But having looked beyond what is written, Solomon now can confirm for us in the book of Ecclesiastes and especially its conclusion that it is not for the follower of God to go beyond what God has chosen to give to them. And here is a humbling reality that we all have to come to terms with. If we will be honest with ourselves, we must admit that man wants to go beyond. Man wants to breach the framework that God has provided for him, It is a product of the fall of mankind that we have an innate desire to leave the security of what God has lined out for us in an attempt to discover more, to attain a somehow better blessing than what God so graciously gave us in the first place. There is an unholy discontent in the heart of man that naturally wells up even in seasons of blessing where God is giving us plenty As the well-known hymn confesses, man is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take a moment now in your Bibles to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul here in Romans 1 points out this crooked tendency in the heart of man that tends to leave the good things that God has built for him. 
So in chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 23, or 21 through 23. You're probably familiar with these lines. For although they, meaning mankind, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Apostle Paul is making a case for the fact that man needs salvation from sin. And as Paul describes it here in chapter 1, man's sin consists of seeing plainly what God intends for his creation, but being personally dissatisfied with it to the point that he breaks the law of God and chooses instead to pursue gods of his own invention, gods that aren't truly gods at all. That is what is natural to the fallen heart of man, friends. Imagination and innovation are often hailed in our society as universal virtues. We should never put a cap on imagination and innovation if you ask the average American. But friends, we need to be cautious about these two things. We often exchange the truth for a lie because the lie is more appealing to our greedy hearts. And so we would rather imagination than reality when it comes to the things of God. Over the course of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has proved that the secret to happiness and purpose in life cannot be found outside of what God has prescribed. And what God has prescribed, he has revealed to his people. And so looking again back at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, the preacher makes two statements about the true word of God here. He says, first and foremost, that the words are from the one shepherd, that they come from God himself. He's declaring that the words of the Old Testament, the words of the covenant law, the words of promise, the words of the prophets are not their own words, but are rather the words of the one shepherd delivered to his people. They are not from man. They are not from a university. They are not from the innovative minds of God's creation. They are from the one shepherd. They are from the God who reigns over all things. And what does a shepherd do, friends? A shepherd leads. A shepherd protects. A shepherd limits where his flock can go. He brings them to what is best for them. He is on the alert because there is always danger lurking to do damage to his flock. And the shepherd is the one with the wherewithal to protect the defenseless ones that he shepherds. We've got to ask ourselves, if God has given us these limits, do we trust that they are for our good? A covenant at its very heart is a contract of relationship. It binds people together so that they might be near to one another, that they might interact in predetermined good ways. And so as God has brought terms to this covenant relationship, terms that we must learn to live under, how do we react to that? Do we trust that the shepherd's limits are for our good? Do we trust that his rod and his staff are a comfort to us as Psalm 23 describes? These words are from the one shepherd. And the second statement that, Eccle that Ecclesiastes makes about these words is that they are like tent stakes 
firmly fixed. This is also shepherding language. Imagine a shepherd who has to put his tent together for the evening. Those nails are driven into the ground and he must trust those nails to hold tight the ropes which keep the roof of the tent up and fixed in place. And so if the word of God is like these nails driven into the ground, then that means that they are firmly fixed. They are not up for negotiation. They are not subject to failure. They will not grow obsolete for us. They are trustworthy. They are permanent and true, and they provide for us shelter and protection from the elements that threaten us. They are declarations of an unchanging God. And they are far more reliable than any of the thoughts and theories of men. We're going to spend next week meditating on sola scriptura because our understanding of the other solas is so inherently rooted in the words that God has revealed to us in Scripture. But for this weekend, I want us to identify a principle that Solomon's revealing to us here. The principle is this. God provides what His people need. If God is not providing it, His people do not need it. God is a good shepherd, and we lack nothing if we put our hope and faith in Him. This heart of innovation, this tendency of man to go beyond what God has declared His gospel to be, this tendency of man to take God's holy scripture and to edit it and to reorganize it and to republish it in ways that it is only a shadow of its former self, do you see the arrogance in going beyond what God has so graciously given to us? On the surface, it would appear that many who add to the gospel or who try to innovate the message so that it might be more appealing to the masses, it might seem like that happens from good intentions to make it more palatable, to make it more marketable. But essentially what we're saying is this, God, I think I know people better than you do. This ancient gospel might have worked hundreds of years ago, but it won't sell to the masses today. And we say this as if our God needs a marketing advisor. How arrogant is it for us to think that we, after hundreds of years of trying to keep the covenant law under the old covenant and finding that we could not do it, how arrogant of us for now to have received the gospel of grace to think that we can improve upon it, that we can change it in such a way that it will be more appealing to people. The truth is, the true gospel has never appealed to the people who, uh, who are, are dominated by sin, who are slaves to their sin. It only appeals to the heart of man when God draws them to it, when God opens their eyes and softens them to this truth that they are otherwise stubborn against. We see a picture of this, a shadow or a type of this, in the manna that God used to feed his people in the Old Testament, don't we? After spending 400 years in slavery, God had warned Abraham that his descendants would have to go through this period of slavery, this period of, of entrapment where they were bound workers under the Egyptian government. After 400 years of this, God through Moses had done a miraculous thing and had shown his power off to the Pharaoh. This power was a precursor. It showed how God was in every way superior to the false gods, the idolic, uh, the idolic gods of the Egyptian people. 
And eventually after showing his power, Pharaoh had no choice but to let God's people go. They left that place of Egypt free people, but they left with a a future that was only known by God. They were called to trust him like sheep being led by a shepherd. And they went out into the wilderness and for a time they trusted, but it became increasingly more difficult for them to not know what came next. And eventually these people who had no food of their own, who had no crops, God had to feed them. He did so by sending a a supernatural sustenance, this, this material called manna, which was then collected each day and brought back and made into a sweet bread that was nutritious and which sustained the people. He provided water for them in the middle of the desert through Moses' staff, which would, uh, which would tap the rock and make water come forth. God provided for their needs, and yet the people of Israel grew impatient. They began to think beyond what God had given and think to themselves, we used to have a greater variety of foods to bless us. We used to have more than just this manna and this water. We used to have leeks and vegetables. We used to have, we used to have quail and meats. Oh, that we were back where we were before. They wanted more than what God had given for them. Even so much so that they allowed themselves to be deceived into thinking that slavery was a better option than faith in the living God. We often fall into the same trap in the church today. We want what we don't really need. And desiring worthless things, we miss the great things that God has already given and provided for us. The five solas represent the basic elements that comprise the framework for God's plan to redeem mankind. The idea of the solas can only exist within the boundaries of a trusting relationship. But God himself must make that relationship exist. It is only through his means that that relationship can be reestablished. So the idea of the solas shows us many of the key relational boundaries that God has set for his people. If Christ alone can save us, then no other sacrifice will do. If grace alone is God's means of saving his people, then the idea of God's love being meritorious must be rejected. If faith alone will save us, then no other path will get us there. We must trust the living God. These are all boundaries to the reality of God's plan to redeem us. And if we're not to go beyond these boundaries, then we're going to have to learn what it means to go beyond. What does it go beyond what is written in the Word? What does it mean to go beyond these these nails which are driven firmly in, these nails, these words of the Good Shepherd? To go beyond means to believe beyond. We must be careful not to believe in anything other than the Scripture God has given to us. We cannot afford to add to the canon of Scripture. We cannot afford to try to integrate modern sensibilities and philosophies and ideas into the Word of God as if God needs us to synthesize His eternal truth with our temporary ideas of what life is really all about. We cannot believe beyond what He has given. We also must be careful not to depend beyond what God has given to us. Our faith and hope must be in Jesus alone and the things that our Good Shepherd provides. We must listen for the voice of this Good Shepherd and trust Him to lead us where we need to go. We don't have to wait around for a government to save us. We have a God who is looking out for us at all times. This good shepherd will protect us from trial and hardship and heartache. 
We must be careful not to worship beyond what is written. God desires to be glorified by his creation and he desires to be glorified in very specific ways. And this is part of why our heart has been so burdened to gather again. Because again and again in scripture, he makes it very clear that a component of his true worship is the people of faith coming together to exalt his name and to sing praises to him and to corporately pray for the will of God to be done among them and to give of their resources to support the mission of God's church. This is God's means of salvation. So we cannot worship beyond what God has called us to worship and we can't fall short of what God has called us to worship him either. And fourthly, we must not teach beyond the words that God has given to us. We must allow these five solas to be like a filter through which we, we, we strain out doctrines that do not matter. Friends, we cannot add to the solas. They are not the only teachings of Scripture. We, of course, must value eschatology, the study of the end things. We've got to value ecclesiology, the, the study of how the church is supposed to be formulated. We are, we are taught about brotherly love and how to love one another and care for one another, encourage one another. There are many other things that we must know, but these are the fundamental things of salvation. We must not try to make anything more than these essential for our faith and our salvation. We saw as we studied through Galatians a little over a year ago, the consequences of this. When Judaizers came into the region of Galatia, the Galatians had been preached the true gospel by Paul himself. They knew that they needed to trust in Jesus Christ to have their sins washed away, that he was the one sacrificed to end all sacrifices. And yet men from Jerusalem came in and began to teach an alternate gospel that said, yes, you need Jesus, but you must add to Jesus faithful expression of obedience to the Mosaic law. You must be circumcised. And you must put yourself under all the civil and, and, uh, commands of the scriptures that were followed in the old covenant. And this was an expansion on the gospel. It was an innovation. It was an addition. They needed to hear the solas. They needed Paul to come. And that's exactly what he does. He writes a letter and sends it to them so that they will see that they should not go beyond what they have been taught. That there is no need for additions to the gospel. That they have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we cannot go beyond. We cannot add to the solas. We also must be careful that we, not, we don't try to graduate from the solas. Some see the five solas as so basic that they're really only like the milk that we need as infant believers. And once you have matured to a more intelligent faith, you can move on from those things. But these solas must remain the staples of our diet, regardless of the varied and diverse doctrines that we encounter as believers. We will not understand those diverse doctrines if the solas are not the foundation upon which we build our understanding. The church as a whole is not where it should be. But we are not the first generation of the church to be in such a position. We must reflect as we press forward, not losing track of where we are going, not forgetting from where we came, and ever grateful for the way that God is moving 
among us. I'm excited about what we will learn in the study of the five solas, and I pray that you'll be able to join us, whether it is here on video or live in person. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Let me close us with a word of prayer. God, we are so very grateful for the ways that you prepare your people to worship you rightly. Lord, as sheep, we would be a scattered flock. We would be vulnerable. We would be wandering without true destination, without hope. But you, as the good shepherd, have called us to yourself. You have brought us to be a part of your fold. And so we pray, Lord God, that as we think about our position with you, that we would see it through the rubric of what you have revealed. Each of these five solas is firmly rooted in the scriptures that you have given to us. Not one of them can stand apart from scripture. All of them are built upon the principles you have given to us in your word. And so I ask that we would be humble as we come before these things. I ask, Lord God, that we would have excitement for them, that not only would we see them as a preliminary things that are good for the beginning of our salvation, but that we would see them carrying on even into the, the silver ages of our faith, that we might love you according to these five solas, that we might not feel the need to change them or adapt them to a new day. Rather, Lord God, let us conform our hearts to your will and to your declaration of truth. We thank you, God, for being the God who never changes. And we pray, Lord God, that you would continue to look after us in all the trials and tribulations of life, leading us ever onward until your return. We pray this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.